You are listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form, one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was storyteller, Navy veteran, Charles McCaffrey. So first, let me say a little bit about my ulterior motive in having Charles on, which is that he is going to be one of the linchpins of our April 13th Savage Wonderground Three Strangers, which is happening in Old Town Alexandria at the beautiful Principal Gallery. We'll be back there April 13th. Want to get tickets? You should. Go get them. SavageWonder.com, SavageWonder.com, SavageWonder.com. That's my plug. Go get tickets now. This show is going to be awesome. Charles is going to be a major component of it. His stories are um, some of the pillars that are holding, propping this show up. So that's why I want to have him on in a very binary way. You know, like there's no way I was going to lose the opportunity to promote the show by not having him on. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about what he's going to do in the show because we are going to talk about it in the interview and I probably need to set this up for you guys a little bit. Um, so Charles, as a storyteller and an artist, but a storyteller as well, um, and primarily for our intensive purposes during the show, he um, a lot of his uh, material that he and I had talked about him doing in Three Strangers was going to be based from a short story he wrote called Dancing in the Dark which I won't give away too much because I want you guys to come see the show. Um, but it follows a army infantryman who's a veteran and is now a trucker, but who's always been fascinated with ballet. And he gets in a car accident, he gets in a, a horrible vehicle accident and has to go through rehab at the VA and ultimately finds love there. Let me just leave it at that. I'm not. Gonna, I don't want to get too much further into it because I want to leave. I don't totally want to tell you guys every nuance and wrinkle that that Charles uh, adds in that story. But that's the basic outline of the story. As you will hear in the interviews, I had a couple of issues with the story um, as it pertained to Wonderground and what. And Charles and I will talk about. Like you guys are going to hear how we're actually putting the Wonderground together because we're going to. I'm actually going to give him notes on my take of the story and we're going to talk about some of the things he's thinking about with it. But to me, the biggest thing was understanding um, where the story came from. And I'm trying to think right now, you know, maybe I will spill this because I don't, I, I think it's unfair to you guys if I don't. And I think we, Charles and I get to it pretty quickly. So I don't think it's going to take away your enjoyment too much. So the, the way that the story unfolds, the infantryman ends up falling in love with his male um, PA, with his uh, 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 whatever, or PT guy, you know, a physical trainer at the VA. And they end up together kind of at the end. And as I tell Charles, I was like, my big takeaway from that was, well, if you set it up that he was an army, ex-army infantryman who is you know, talking about liking, you know, ballet 
but not feeling comfortable talking about that because people might make fun of them or whatever. So there's not that much, there's not that much that's surprising about a man who may not know he's gay or is just slowly coming around to that being attracted to ballet necessarily like that, that doesn't totally blow us away. That's like, Oh, okay. Yeah, of course. Like it's more interesting if he's straight and he just likes ballet. That's kind of a different way to go. Um, and to me, that's more interesting. Um, and I'll, I'll, and you'll hear Charles's response to this. So I'm just teeing you up where, where I was coming from, but I also tell you where I'm coming from with that because I felt like there was something I was missing in that story and I didn't know what it was. And that's why I wanted to get Charles's take on it. And I really want to know more about him and about where he was coming from. And when we talk about it and talk about Charles being gay in the military prior to don't ask, don't tell being reversed, um, or I could have just said, I, <laughs> while Don't Ask, Don't Tell was in effect. Um, you know, I'm not going to spoil the rest of what he's going to talk about in the interview, but it um, that played a much bigger role than I thought it would. <laughs> Let me say that. Uh, that definitely took our conversation down a different path and one we haven't had on this show before, which was interesting. And really, um, and man, did it make his writing pop for me more where I was like, oh, I get what this is about. Okay. I see this now. And that is um, very, very cool. So you guys are going to kind of be privy to almost what starts as an interview and becomes almost a production meeting for Savage Wonderground uh, during the during the interview. And uh, you guys are going to see how the sausage gets made. So really fun time talking with Charles. Um Charles said one other thing that I just want to comment on. He does mention uh, when I ask him that he doesn't really identify as a professional artist. And I get it because who makes money doing storytelling? So I I get you would not consider yourself professional by being a storyteller. But but his work is really – it's really interesting to see his work unfolding. And and I can't wait for you guys – those of you that are able to come see Wonderground to see the, what the final product is going to be, um, especially hearing what Charles talks about on the show today. So really exciting stuff. Um, I'm not going to sell too much more of it. I think you guys just need to hear the interview. Um, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay, without further ado, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I am the artistic director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is the Savage Wonder of Charles McCaffrey. Welcome to the show, Charles. Thank you. Good. Thanks for having me. So you, you pulled a fast one on me for a second. I was like, dude, you have a kick-ass library behind you. And I was like, son of a bitch. She just freaking got a great screensaver. That looked pretty badass, though. I was really stoked for a second there. It's my dream, though. <laughs> You're aspiring to have a, a a bookcase like that. Yeah, that's um, it's funny because I, when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about today, I was like, man, there's there's no shortage of topics to start with with you. At the same time, that also makes it I can go I, I'm feeling like I'm going to be very scatterbrained throughout the interview because I want to cover 
so many different aspects of your life. So I'll say this, <clears throat> when you sent me your artist statement and bio for Savage Wondered Around, and you included that, uh, you know, piece of biographical information where you were like, hey, as a kid, I was at a notebook, I'd always walk around drawing, writing, doing something like that. And that's carried on. <clears throat> when did the military infiltrate that? How did that kid end up going into the military? Or how did that kid end up going so hard into business and getting the MBA and all that? Were those in contrast? Were those parallel lines of effort and enthusiasms for you? Or did one thing develop and then the next thing developed? Uh, I, I think a lot of it was out of necessity. So the the you know carrying the journal, doing the drawing, all of that um, from very very young age. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of us who join the military uh, hide that because that doesn't necessarily match with the military persona. Um, and so I was still doing it. Obviously, I had the the good fortune to travel, and so when I traveled, I'd go to the art museums and and the cafes and 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 all that. Um, but not necessarily something that I talked too much about. Fortunately, I was I was in, I guess, what would be perceived as an intellectual part of the military with intel and cybersecurity. So. I, there's probably a little bit of yeah, I'm, I'm expected to be a bit of a, a an artsy fartsy nerd mm -hmm. to begin mm -hmm. with. So sure. so I had that benefit, um, but it really wasn't until several years after the military um, that I started picking that up again from the uh, a wanting to do it like I did prior to that, but also feeling that I needed to do it, that I needed to get the stuff out of the brain and out of the heart and everything else that was was building up. Of course. Um, it, interestingly enough, so I, you know, pursued the MBA, started a small business with a, a partner, went and taught small business for veterans. Um, and about the same time, so I want to say about 2015 or so, um, I was starting up the Veteran Business Outreach Center for the Mid-Atlantic under the SBA. Um, Megan Ogilvie at Dog Tag Bakery was starting the Dog Tag uh, mm -hmm. Inc. and the fellows along with Father Curry and, and the folks there. Sam Pressler was starting Armed Services Arts Partnership. Uh, all in the D.C. area. And so we just kind of got to know each other. We were supporting each other's events. When I was teaching business classes and people were like, hey, I, I hate talking in public, which I don't blame them. Uh, I am an introvert. Um, they were like, hey, what do you do? And I was like, hey, so take a comedy class, take a storytelling class. Uh, and like all good veterans, they called me on it and they said, so which one have you done? And I hadn't done any of them yet. Uh, I had always just been an audience member. And so I got involved. And uh, I think one of the first stories, maybe you saw the the video of me telling the story mm -hmm. of being hit and having a concussion and going to an art museum. So that was the very first story I ever told on stage. Um, and and it's all, uh, all all from that, all the stuff that I'm doing now. When did you go into, I'm going to back all the way up because I want to unpack so much of what you just said. When did you go into the Navy? 
Uh, so I did uh, delayed enlistment. Um, so it was 87. And then I joined as soon as I graduated in 88. Why? What was pushing you into the Navy? Um, so a couple of things. One is four older brothers uh, who had uh, three of whom had joined the military, joined the Navy. So my my father was actually Air Force uh, and then Air National Guard. Um, by the time I came around sure. uh, and and we kind of all joke about the story that, you know, he he saw the military and, and saw uh, did not go to Vietnam, but saw everything that was going on. So in the early 70s, when his oldest sons were looking to join the military, it was like, hey, I, I encourage you to join the military, maybe not the Army or the Marines right now. Um, and so we joined the Navy. Four of us of the seven kids joined the Navy. And then there's about a 30-something year difference between my oldest brother and my little brother. And so when the little brother wanted to join, uh, all of us Navy guys were like, join the Air Force. They put in the golf course in the commissary first. Uh, and so he did. He joined the joined the Air Force. So so there was the the military history within the family. Um, but also, you know, we're, we were middle class, growing up in Montana, seven kids, um, you know, stay-at-home mom, dad worked. Mm -hmm. um, there was not a whole lot of money uh, for college education and things like that. And so that that was the second part of it was to to get my degree and, and or at this point, several degrees that the <laughs> has, has paid for. Right, right. When you uh, enlisted, did you, were you dead set on a certain rating or a certain MOS or whatever, or were you just like, hey, I'm here to get as many bennies as I can, and I'm going to bounce out as soon as I possibly can? So the, the yeah, the initial plan was at least the four years, get the get the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. I, I had a fairly decent ASVAB score, and so um, a lot of opportunities were there for me. I think at the time they were really pushing nuke power. Uh, but that, that did not have an interest for me, but they mentioned, so at the time it was called cryptology. They don't call it that anymore. Uh, but that sounded really interesting to me. I, I like math. Um, hate, hate to say it, but I read the, the James Bond books and watched the movies growing up. Um, and so that's, uh, I'm very thankful I did that that's what I, I went into, um, and that was your whole career. Your whole career, you never changed from that, really. Right? I I didn't. Um, wow. And and yeah, I was told I would. You know, when I bounced from enlisted officer, that I wouldn't probably stay in the same community. But I I ended up doing so. Wow. And so, yeah. So so, but that but that uh, enlistment was a minimum of six years. Okay. Uh, as opposed to a three or four year enlistment, because the amount of school that you go yeah. through. And so and did you get um, language out of that? Uh, I did not. I, I did as an officer apply to go to DLI um, and they saw my score and said, stick to English. You may pick it up eventually, um, but any other language, forget it. So so I know I was on the um, the maintenance side. So okay. um and I mean, God, when I when I first joined, we were that was still paper tape and wow. the punch cards. And I remember 
troubleshooting by flipping switches and in binary and entering the instructions that way. So, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was really old school, uh, you know, Manuel Morris was still around and, and, and all that. Um, and did you like it? Did you enjoy it while you're, I did. I love that part of it. I I absolutely love that part of it. Um, and my schools and because of the equipment I was working on was almost, almost two years. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, I was already in E5 by the time I was huh. coming out of school. Wow. Um, but, I, you know, probably the best bit of advice that I got from a, a senior NCO, who fortunately saw more in me than I think I, I saw in myself at the time, because um, he did encourage me to apply for an officer program and, and, mm-hmm. and everything. Um, but one of the things he, he said was, um, never say no. He's like, if, if an opportunity presents itself, whether it's a duty station or an educational or, or anything, he's like, just just take it. He's like, because the, these opportunities are not presented like this in the civilian world. Um, and so when somebody mentioned uh, ROTC, I, I applied, not really having even thought about college and, and what I would mm. do um, and got picked up for that. And that was during your first enlistment. Your first time. I was during my first enlistment. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So then what happened? You went to college and just in, went to ROTC for the next four years? I did. Yeah. So, um, yeah, went to went to Georgia Tech. Uh, it was four years of college. Obviously, because I was still in my enlistment, if I did not complete college, I went back to uh, being enlisted. And did they extend the contract because you're in college now and you're not at a duty station? Not to the best of my knowledge. Um, I'm sure there was a lot of paperwork that got shuffled around. I think it was more of the if if I if I make it through, which would have put me at the six year mark uh, graduating college, then all is forgiven. And I just start my contract as as an officer. Right. But if I don't, I go back. And, And to the best of my knowledge of the 14 men and women that were prior enlisted that started my year, I was the only one who did not go back. Um, I I was the one who did the four years in college got and and got the commission. Uh, Interestingly enough. So wanting to stay with kind of the cryptology world, I started as a computer engineer uh, at Georgia tech and absolutely hated it. Absolutely hated it. I'm sure. Um, yeah. And they had just started or were about to start a program called History, Technology and Society. Um, so a very both technical and liberal arts mm-hmm. based. Um, but because of the charter under which Georgia Tech operates, it it, it is a uh, has to be a science degree, a bachelor of science degree. Um, so. So people used to joke that I have a BS degree in liberal arts from Georgia Tech. <laughs> Seems like a made joke. So what I don't understand is for you, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the impression I got from your bio was that you were an artsy kid to begin with. And it's rare that an artsy kid gravitates towards these mathematic-based fields and then ends up even looking at a Georgia Tech. You know, knowing that you're going to have to get a BS degree as opposed to a BA. And so you're kind of, I guess what I'm getting at is, did you feel like you were setting yourself up for failure by looking at these things that maybe you weren't wired 
to go to, or were you somebody that really could pivot and you're like, Hey, I can do the art thing and then I can pivot and I can, you know, go hard at math and maybe it's not computer engineering, but it's, it's something in that realm. I can do math science and it doesn't scare me. Uh, I, I want to say that I was too green to, to know better. Hmm. Okay. To know what my limitations were or or my interests or anything. It was um this is something that interests me. I'm gonna try it. Okay. Uh, um and very quickly <laughs> with the computer engineering degree, realized this was not yeah. uh what I was interested in. And so, you know, they had this whole new curriculum, which I love history. Um, but I also do like the science side of things, the technical side, so I could take you know, whatever type of technical classes I could take. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the history classes were like on the history of technology. So mm-hmm. the, the technology behind uh, a, a number of things. So my, you know, was one of the few degree programs that you had a um, undergraduate thesis to write. Huh. Uh, and mine was on the rise of the hacker community hmm. um, and and the whole history behind it and everything. Um and, you know what was going on in the in the mid '80s, early '90s uh, in computer development and hacker tech, uh, hackers and things like that. Not even envisioning the whole cybersecurity aspect of sure. it. Sure. Um, but I was also taking classes in philosophy and psychology, and and so it was it was just it was a real eclectic mix um, that I enjoyed, and that that definitely uh, was more more my style. Did you find yourself taking well? to advanced education like did you feel at home at college where you could take the wide variety of classes did that it seems like that would be appealing to you it it is and i mean in my mid-40s going back and doing my mba um probably was the the most fun because i i had the experience to begin with I didn't have to worry about developing study habits or anything because I'd, I'd always kind of been a, a lifetime learner. Mm. Uh, and so I really could just enjoy the classes uh, and had some just amazing professors. Mm. Uh, hated economics uh, as an undergrad and absolutely loved it with the, the uh, MBA oh. professor. So interesting. Wow. Um, and I had, you know, I was looking at, so I had started the the deli uh, in central Pennsylvania with a with a friend of mine that I met up there. Um, so I had a little bit of small business background. I knew I was interested in in that. Um, wanted to get out of government contracting, and so was doing what a lot of people in DC do, which is consult. Um, so I I kind of leveraged my MBA into my consulting business. So gotcha. I would gotcha. I would. You know, I'd have a uh, an assignment for a class, and I would reach out to a company, um, do the assignment, and and get a little business on the side from it. So, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So, when you were in college getting your bachelor's, was there starting to be an inkling of where this was all leading? Did you have any idea of what of what the end game was for you? Were you no. thinking? Okay, all right. No, nope, not at all. Um, Just one foot in front of the other. Yeah, I, I again back to the advice I got. I was just um, taking advantage of opportunities that that presented uh, okay. themselves. But I mean, even today, I, I mean, I I turned fifty three over the weekend, and I I still say I I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> right, right. 
And that seems like that's common. That seems like that's common in the, in our community. I feel like a lot of guys, especially it seems like in the early fifties go, because I've had a career and holy shit. Um, I'm still not fully fleshed out. I got a whole bunch of other stuff I want to do. And there, I think there's a big chunk of the veteran community that is just kind of burgeoning with ideas and they, they kind of bubble up and they're like, I've been able to really execute one specific facet of who I am, but there's all these other things I want to get to and I want to try out. I, I, I feel like I've seen or heard that multiple times before. Is that true for you too? Or is this just, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. all the time. I mean, the, um, having taken classes and worked with folks with armed services, arts partnership, um, with the veteran business center now with the, the veteran career program. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, right now I, I can think of a couple people in my business class that are trying to take their hobbies, which had absolutely nothing to do with what they did in the military uh, and turn it into a business. You yeah. Know? So, yeah, absolutely. No, that makes sense. So when you got back into the active Navy after college, um, What'd you do? Where'd you go? Yeah. So uh did get picked up to go back into cryptology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over the over the years, it was, you know, uh became the command and control fair command and control warfare officer, the information warfare officer. Uh, I don't even know what they call call it anymore. Um, I know the warfare pin for it is uh just as big of a mess uh, as the community because it's like got lightning bolts and wings and waves and, and, you know, so it's, it's kind of a conglomeration of that, but I, I was very fortunate. I did my first tour was in Scotland Hmm. uh, at a comm site there um, that eventually shut down. Um, But I mean, that was both a great mission and great people and a great location to go, to go out and do things. Yeah. Um, went to a ship after that, uh, out of Norfolk where my brother was also stationed, um, didn't really spend a whole lot of time there. We did our workups and then we deployed, um, as part of what's called standing Naval forces, Atlantic or sniffle. Uh, so we deployed, we actually had a Dutch ship that was the command ship. Mm. Um, but we had a Spanish ship, a Belgian ship, a French ship, um, and it alternated um, throughout the year as uh, or throughout the six month deployment. Um, we were one of the most consistent ships because it was we're used to a six month deployment, whereas other navies were maybe shorter. Oh, interesting. Um, but we did stops in the Caribbean and the Mediterranean and and England and. And would you take leave with those different crews? Did you get to know them? Um, so we did. Uh, so my my commanding officer picked up that I I was a little artsy fartsy, uh, and so he made me what was called the cross pollination officer. And so I was my job, in addition to what I was doing, was to make sure that members of our crew got to go for a couple of days over to another ship and have their folks onto our ship. Um, It actually made me more popular than, uh, and got me around more than the, uh, the commanding officer. So when the other captains had gifts, they gave them to me because I, you know, was, was helping their crew and and, and everything. Um, 
So I did that. Um, and then, like I said, we, you know, when we were pulling into ports, it was show the flag and, and, and doing that. Um, we did stay in Northern Spain for, I want to say two and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's when I took leave and, and traveled through Spain and Portugal. Yeah. Um, and then I was back home when, when we, when we pulled into, um, well, we pulled into Tilbury and then took the trains up to to London. Um, you know, that was my old stomping ground. I used to go down to, to London all, all the time. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of, um, out and abouts. And so, in, you know, in the artist statement, when I talk about meeting people and seeing yeah. things, I mean, that, that was a big part of it. Yeah. How did you find the officer life? Um, was it, you hadn't been enlisted, I guess, for all that long. So did you feel a culture shock or did it come naturally to you to now be in charge? I, uh, I, I want to say it came naturally. Um, and maybe you've heard this as well, but I heard a lot that, that prior enlisted either make the very best officers or the absolute worst. Um, and there's no kind of middle ground with that. Um, I, I hopefully, uh, was not the absolute worst. Um, but I really took it seriously, um, that, that the, the officer's charge is to take care of the troops and let the troops take care of the mission. Right. Um, and I was very fortunate to have good, uh, senior NCOs and, and, and just good people in, in general. And so I, my thought was to, to keep every, everybody, uh, else off their back, uh, and all the bureaucratic and stuff. I, I would handle that and let them do the job. And then I think because of my experience going through ROTC and, and everything, I, I brought that same mentality that I, it was like, you know, if you, if you want to be enlisted and you want to stay enlisted and you want to be good at your, your rate, uh, that's great. Uh, if you want to get your, your degree, I, I wholly encourage it. If you want to do an officer program, I'll wholly encourage it. It, it was, um, I was really all about the uh, the opportunities and making sure that they um, had the opportunities and had the chance to take advantage of those opportunities. So um, did, I enjoyed it. Did you find that now you were thinking of it as a career as like, hey, I think I need to get 20 years and I'm kind of on that course now? Or was it still taking it day by day? I think still taking it day by day. Okay. Um, you know, my my brother. uh was retiring from the military and so i was seeing what retirement was and and everything and i mean fairly young yeah mid 40s or whatever um and so it was in the back of my mind um but i think also i i don't know that i was ever the military kid right uh growing up so so it was kind of those it it, it could go either way um but i also think like a lot of folks, I didn't know what I would do if I got out of the military. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think? How did your family, I guess, look at your military service? Or I guess a better question is, how did you rate your military service looking at your family members, having all these other brothers that were in the military were like, hey, I got to at least do more time than this guy just so like I've ticked that box. Nobody can give me shit about this. Like, was there any sense of that? Because that's a that's a pretty strong family dynamic to have that much military service in the family. It, it is. So of the four of us who joined the Navy, um, so my, my older brother 
uh, oldest brother did, I want to say did one tour and left, uh, enlisted. So my second oldest brother, he started enlisted, went through, uh, I believe ROTC as well, um, got his commission. And he, interestingly enough, kind of stayed in the yeoman PAO community hmm. uh, his whole career. Um, my next oldest brother and I were both enlisted at the same time. And when I picked up a four-year ROTC program, he applied for a two-year OCS program. So he would never have to call me, sir. <laughs> Got you. Yep. Um, okay. That makes so, sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but they all, um, both my older brother that and him that got commissions went, uh, um, oh, initially I think they went surface warfare. So surface warfare officer, um, and then went PAO. They both went into to PAO. And, uh, and then I came along and had this exotic career that was behind the green curtain and everything, uh, went to Scotland, went to, you know, all, all these places. So, um, I, I think a part of them, not necessarily jealous, as much as he's not in the real Navy. Um, uh, you're not supposed to see that much of the world. Yeah. Just a little yeah. bit of the world. Yeah. He, he's, he's kind of living the, the, you know, <laughs> uh, cruise ship type of Navy. Even when I was on the ship, you know, they're like, you don't even get a traditional deployment. You, you, you deploy with NATO and, and go and see exotic ports. So right. um, I, I think there was that, but I think uh, nonetheless, across the board, just, uh, proud of what all of us were doing. Well, that's fair. When you were traveling, what areas, I mean, we talked about Scotland and Portugal, Spain. Was Did Europe really stand out to you? Did that have the most impact or were there other places that also really made a deep imprint on you in a way that, you know, left a lasting impression? Um, Europe did because it was shortly after the fall of, of the Soviet Union. And so going to places like Berlin, where part of the wall was still up uh, and seeing that and, um, you know, kind of seeing what, what we had all been fed uh, in the military was that democracy would triumph over communism uh, and and actually seeing it and and feeling like maybe I had a small part uh, to do with that. Um, mm. I, I think that at least at that point that was the um, had the biggest impact. Gotcha. Um, when did you actually, in your mind, make the decision that yeah, this is this is going to be a career. This is going to actually happen. Uh, I don't know that I ever did. Really? Yeah. <laughs> When 9-11 happened, you were still in, right? I was. Uh, Where were you? D.C. Okay. Uh, so I was in D.C. Uh, heard heard about the first plane. We were all watching when the second plane hit. Um, and then I was, I believe, scheduled to be at the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I was walking out, saw the smoke coming from the Pentagon and, and went back into the office. Um, cause I knew whatever, whatever I was doing over there was not happening. Um, yeah. and then because of the work I was doing and everything, and because of our location and a number of things, which was in an unsuspecting location, we kind of became a Intel headquarters. Um, so, 
um, yeah, that's that that's where I, I was in the D.C. area. Was that a um, I mean, what did that day mean to you? Was that a day where you're like, holy shit, things just got real? Or were you was there a sense of um, excitement that, OK, I get to there's going to be a game after this. We actually get to take the field for real or 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 was it just um, more blase than that? I don't know. What was your reaction? to? No, it? I think it was, um, you know, when when I was coming up and and the job I did in Scotland was all very much focused on the Soviet Union, right? Um, and and historically looking at World War One, World War Two, you know, the 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 superpowers and everything, that was the that was the war and and the warfare we had prepared for. Um and I think it was more of uh and I hate it when people say this, but it, it was kind of holy shit. Everything just changed. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cause we, we, you know, kind of got broadsided there and, and we're not sure who the enemy was. I mean, certainly in retrospect, people had been talking about it uh, for right. quite some time um, and not necessarily listening. Um, so there was, uh, I, I think there was a bit of excitement or exhilaration that, that, you know, because something had happened, but also some apprehension of uh, what do we do? What did you think it was going to mean for you? Um, I, uh, I I think it it didn't really impact me from the standpoint of um, I I thought it was we can we can you know I'd always been kind of at a safe distance collecting mm-hmm. the intel and and everything mm-hmm. like that. Um, obviously, in my time in the military, we had never had a battle with Russia. Correct. Um, although I knew you know Marines and and Army and in places like you know Somalia and 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 Beirut and things like that, um, but didn't did not ever conceive that it would become a um, everybody deploying and so so long of a um team team level warfare right, right. um and deployment to to these countries so you thought it was going to be kind of spot fires low intensity conflict kind of thing where maybe we're you know putting some elements in play but we're not full scale forward deploying yeah not not to the extent that that it eventually became okay did uh, emotionally that day, was there, thinking of like Henry V, you know, that, uh, well, I'm going to paraphrase, but the the, the phrase of, uh, you know, uh, men asleep in bed right now will think themselves cursed that they were not here that day. Was there a sense that, hey, I'm already in. I'm I'm here. I'm ready for this. I don't I don't have to suddenly think about joining the military or am I going to or am I not going to? What am I giving up? What job would I have to leave? And all that. You're already there. You're primed. You're ready. And you're the, you're the ones that have, were on duty that day and ready to go. Was there a sense of pride about that, or was that not not really crossing your mind? Um, I I uh, I, I think maybe two parts of that. One was uh, yep. So I'm already in. Had been in for a while. I knew my job, and now it was shifting to job uh, the job to a new uh, adversary. 
um, and, and trying to figure that out. But I think also it was the, um, I've been in for a while. Why did we not pick up on this? How did, how did we not avoid this from happening? Especially given the community I was in, we're supposed to be the ones that hear about this stuff ahead of time. Um, and you know, had never, I, I remember being in Scotland and having, uh, uh, somebody from the NSA or an admiral within Naval security group or something like that, talking about, um, you know, the, uh, about the, these people who live in caves, mm-hmm. uh, and, and fight and everything and how our advanced technology was, was going to, um, overwhelm them and just thinking how how do you fight against an enemy that goes to a radio shack uh and picks up a minor technology and uses it against us when we're we're this advanced technology and and we're not sure how all this is gonna gonna happen um and and again i was in the community you know, very early on, I guess, when we talk about cybersecurity and everything, and and I know in briefings, we would talk about electronically taking out of target, but but leaving it intact so we could use it as a source of information down the road. And and then someone in like the army going, but I prefer it to be a crater. <laughs> uh, and, and that's what it became, right? Um, so... Yeah, a lot of, I think a lot of mixed emotions on on how all this was going to going to happen. Did you end up deploying to Afghanistan or Iraq? I I did not. Um and this is kind of I, I started dating somebody um just prior to 9/11 um and and he did um deploy and and uh was was killed over there. Um and so that that's what kind of took took the turn in my career. Tell me about that. So first off, look, can we back up for a second? Just sure. because I think I don't, I, I want to make sure we don't breeze past this. Just like, you know, there's, there's too many uh, points to dive into. Talk about being gay in the military before don't ask, don't tell was overturned. I mean, just that experience and, and, and what that meant to you and, and with that relationship, I mean, to have that relationship in those years. Yeah. Um, a very good friend of mine who's a marine aviator i think he summed it up best he said uh i served under don't uh and i was okay with that he goes i served under don't ask don't tell i'm okay with that um i might have a problem if it becomes mandatory um (laughs) and, and so you know it's one of those things where uh growing up it was a very different um, perspective of what it meant to be gay um, and, and a lot of misconceptions about it so that um, whatever feelings I had, I was like, well, I don't know what that feeling is, but it's not gay. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause, mm-hmm. cause mm-hmm. you know um, and then I, I remember very vividly before don't ask, don't tell being past um and this would have been probably my junior year in ROTC 
if not the senior year, my last year, um, we had to sign a pledge. It was a very specific pledge that we pledged that we were not homosexual, that we were not engaged in homosexual behavior. Um, and I think the leadership knew Don't Ask, Don't Tell was coming along and they wanted to do something that they couldn't do after that legislation was passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and by by this point, I had an inkling uh, about myself, and but still signed it uh, with kind of no hesitation because it's it's also the my my personal life is none of the military's yeah. business yeah. because because I don't make my personal life the military's business either, right? So yep. um, have have always and and even to this day. Uh, very much a separation between the work I do and and, and my private life, um, and so, um, and so I think that maybe that's part of the reason why the military as a career was never anything that was cemented, was because I, I did not consider the military to be my entire life. Um, that there were things, and so, so of course, as as things progressed, and you know. The debates about don't else don't tell and, and everything and pros and cons and everything and and some self-realizations and, and everything. Um maybe a little bit of nervousness, but it was also the, you know, um again, I, and probably naive being naive is well, but but that's my personal life and it's never gonna come into hmm. play in the military. Um and, and then, and you'll appreciate this. So sure enough, I go to a, an art opening at the principal gallery and that's where I meet my, my boyfriend. Really? Yeah. Jesus, you really have some history with principal gallery. Yeah. No kidding. Holy shit. <laughs> Jesus uh, Christ. Wow. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah, walked in, uh, and, and I, I've, I've told this story on stage as, as well. Um, you know, saw him. He was with a, a girl that I thought was his his date. Um, and and I was I was always like, yeah, because, you know, that's where you find Marines uh, that you end up dating is at art galleries. <laughs> um, and then we just. Uh, uh, couldn't couldn't be more different. There was probably an eight year difference. Him being younger than I was um, infantry Marine. Um, a little bit taller, a little bit well built. Um, but we kind of had the same mentality of um there's the military life and then there's us uh as individuals. And so we were very much homebodies. We, you know, when when he wasn't out training or I wasn't traveling. So I was doing of all things, government uh systems acquisitions. Right. So government contracting and uh, but from the military side. So I was traveling quite a bit as well. But when we weren't, uh, I mean, we were just homebodies. That's a really interesting dynamic, because I think in this day and age, I think there's a lot of. Not just you in the military, but I think in all facets of life that everything's holistic, that if you're whatever your interests are, you have to bring that to everything you are. If you have a cubicle, then your cubicle is decorated with bumper stickers about every single thing that you care about, whether it's football, whether it's like, I'm a Packers fan, I've got to have this up, you know, whatever. It just seems like, um, and I think there's a misconception with folks in the military that 
when you draw set boundaries and you have that division of your personal life and your business life, there's a real necessity for that because the military is a lifestyle. It's not a job. And I think a lot of civilians don't understand that. And they're like, well, you should just be, you should bring your whole self to everything. And it's like, well, not, not really, because I got to set boundaries, maybe even artificially, because if I don't, the job is already infringing on boundaries. It's already going to move me to different places. And I'm going to be, you know, my, my personal and, and professional lives are going to be colliding a whole lot. Am I off on that? Is there anything? No, that I, I'm no, I think that? you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, even after, uh, after military service and I was, you know, working for a university, which tends to be very liberal minded for the most part. Um, I just didn't think it was anybody's business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I was like, look, you get me for eight hours. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, and that is just time I am borrowing to you because I want a paycheck. Um, but when that time is done, uh, I have other things that I want to do and, and people I want to be with and, and things like that. Um, not really a sense of shame or anything like that. It's just, you know, yeah. you have boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can I compartmentalize things. Now, some of that is 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 also, you know, bad. Um you know, when when he was killed, um we were still under don't ask, don't tell. So um I got to sit with the family because I was a friend of the family, but um uh, other than a few members of, of his group, uh most people didn't know that we had been in a relationship for uh, about three and a half, four years. Wow. Um, and, and then, you know, any sort of talking about how I'm feeling about things or, or anything like that, um, obviously can't go to the military, uh, and have that conversation say, I want to talk to a Navy shrink about something. Um, uh, cause that would be, that would be telling. Um, did you worry about your clearance at all? Was that? Oh Yeah. You? Oh yeah, I, I I worried about all of that, um, and you know, uh, full disclosure that that uh, I I made some very bad decisions when it came to self medication, mm. um, because I was keeping all of that inside and trying to keep up a persona and still having the, you know, the mentality of hey, I'm the officer, I have troops, um, and I need to take care of them first, um. Uh, and um, while this other stuff personally is 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 going on, uh, and unfortunately the two of them eventually clashed, and and uh, that that was when I knew I needed to to leave. Did you? It's it's funny. The thought that keeps coming to me while you're saying all this is how not Gen Z you are, <laughs> right? I I feel like. I feel like that would be um, like you were making decisions of a, of a Gen Xer in a way that that a, a Gen Zer would not have made those decisions for better or for worse. Not casting aspersions in either direction. Just um, it, it's so funny because it's not it's the kind of stoicism that you don't see a lot of. I guess would be a way nowadays, or you don't hear lauded a lot. But there is also a price to pay with that. And that there is that it's, you know, nothing's a hundred percent, nothing's a guaranteed win in that. Um, Would your relationship with him have been official? Had you been able to make it official? 
would it have gone further than that or was it progressing along as much as it needed to at that point oh no i mean if if um if we had been together after the repeal and um you know legalization of marriage and everything we would have taken those steps okay Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. At, at, a, at a certain point that was comfortable for us, it wasn't necessarily the day one after, uh, you know, the the appeal that or repeal that that we would have jumped into things. But um, we we would have. Yeah. Again, assuming we were still together dating. Right. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, so, I mean, I only say that because, I mean, that's significant. I mean, at that point. And for you, I imagine you weren't even notified of his death right away, right? It kind of came to you second or third hand, right? So so actually, I knew first because I had access to message traffic. So I was still active duty, working the comms. I had message traffic. So I saw it the day it happened. Jesus. Um, and was not... Again, out of a sense of duty, and, and sometimes I look back and things, and it was like, well, how stupid was that? But I did not tell his parents until his parents were officially notified, even though I knew sure. several days in advance. Um, yeah. But that's the military side of you. That is like, the military right, side. Keeping, keeping all everything in good order, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, what did that – at that moment, I'm, I'm just asking because I've, I've never – walked a mile in these shoes. So I'm I'm just curious what that was like for you. Would did every throw everything into relief that suddenly it was like, oh, even though I've been keeping my personal life and my and my business life separate, um, this is really colliding in a way that is significant and that's moving the needle more than I would have anticipated. No, I I don't think I realized that until several years after I left the military. Um, cause I, you know, be, because of things that had happened, I was wor- again, worried about my, my clearance and my career mm-hmm. and everything okay. like that. And, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier about not knowing what you're going to do after the military. Yeah. Um, I, I feel very fortunate that I was able to transition from like the crypto cybersecurity side of things to the small business side, which has allowed me to have a second career. Um, and it it honestly wasn't until working with the folks at ASAP and, and telling that first story. So the first story, I knew I wasn't getting up on stage and telling a serious story, right? Totally. Yeah. Uh, it was, I, although, I mean, getting a concussion is a serious story that, were, you know, getting a concussion and going and acting like you're a docent <laughs> at a museum is <laughs> uh, is a whole other whole other thing. Right. Um, But eventually, through the conversations that I had and working with other people and everything, I I was like, I I think I'm ready to tell this story. Um, And that was, you know, getting up on a stage first um, in front of maybe a couple hundred people and then eventually a couple thousand people and telling that story. It's like every every time. I'm coming out again, and I don't know what people's response is going to be uh, to it. Um, to point now where I think every, most people have seen the story uh, mm-hmm. or, or something and know it, and and so 
Um, it is kind of out there and I get asked from time to time to tell that story or parts mm. of it and kind of the, what it's like. Um, and I think that's when it finally, so interestingly enough, that's when it probably collided was, was me having the understanding that, so this was going on and I was trying to be a good, uh, sailor and, having all this um, shit, other shit going on in my life and, and being self-destructive and everything. Um, that's what was causing all of this uh, type of thing, or that, that was what was going on. And, and that was probably when I felt the most free was it was like, it was like, look at, at almost 50. Now I have come out Um and um uh, i i'm still alive right um i i i did not uh, get struck by lightning uh for coming out and and having a, a a relationship like everyone else has a relationship and and everything like that so it it it's been fairly recently um yeah, and and so probably I I will so I've I've always kind of considered myself a happy go lucky type of person, um, but this is probably the happiest I've been in my life is the the last couple of years. That is something I think. Um, it's fine. I, there's so much I want to ask, and I'm 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 trying to pick which lane to go down with it. Um, I have to imagine that that in and of itself is a great showcase and a great example of why art is important to the warrior. And I say this all the time. I'm like, I don't want to replace warriors with artists, but you got to walk the warrior path or you don't have to, but if you do walk the warrior path, art is a help to you. It doesn't need to replace the warrior side or the things you've done. It's no, I walked this and now I can unpack. And art has that ability to unpack things in a healthy way. Is that how you feel? Or do you feel like now with this self-realization and self-actualization, let's call it, do you feel like you would have made different choices from the get-go in life? Um, yes. Um and but but interestingly enough, I think the only the only choice that I would would consider uh, the biggest one, I, I I probably would have made the choice to make the military a career, right? Um, or or that's the only thing I wish I had been able to accomplish. Now looking back, mm. um, and and having finished that out, but. You know, I look back on like the poetry that I wrote or the paintings or drawings or whatever that I did um, when I was still in the closet. And I it's like, yeah, it's pretty obvious what I was trying to say in this poem, but I thought I was being clever hmm. uh, by writing it in poetry. Hmm. Um, but it was, hmm. it's pretty, pretty clear uh, what's what's getting said. And so I I. So even though I didn't realize it, I was unpacking uh, the the emotions and the internal feelings and everything through my writing and through the artwork. Um, and now 
I just, uh, I, I can be a little less self-confident uh, or self-conscious about when I paint something um, that it's like, yep. So this is exactly the story I am saying with this painting right. um, or with this, with this poem. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, do you feel like it's a natural jumping off point to do more art, painting, poetry, writing, storytelling, or do you feel like it's all kind of been leading up to these moments of catharsis, realization, what have you? Yeah, I'm. Some of my friends really hate the fact that I am a. You know, um, if something happens, it happens for a reason. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I am. Not, I would not consider myself a religious person, uh, but I. There have just been so many times where I've been like, "Why did that happen?" And then maybe a year later, I'm like, "Oh." Because this happened, eventually this this thing happened, yeah. um, and so I I think I am exactly where I'm supposed to be, mm. um, and yeah, I, I I think it is. And there's you know there's there's times if nothing else, I I think I am more feel a little more hurried. Um, because now there is 50 something years of stories mm-hmm. that I'm trying to get out in how mm-hmm. many amount of time, I, much time I've got left. Right. Um, and, and everything reminds me now of a story that, that I need <laughs> to tell and, and, and everything. Uh, and I'm just not that fast at writing or, or anything like that. I, you know, there's one painting. It probably took me 10 years uh, mm. before I actually had it done to the point where I, I liked it. Um, but the, be- I think the best part about this is, is I can tell my story either directly or through telling a different story. So with the piece that I'm working on for the, for the April event, mm-hmm. uh, there is a lot of that coming out uh, in that Um and so there are some some lines within that story that are exactly what I've written in a journal about something mm-hmm. that happened to me at a particular time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so there's there's that fun aspect of it um, as well. I, I'm trying to think of this going to sound like an incredibly obvious question, or if it's actually got any kind of depth and and uh, cleverness to it. Uh, do you? How how much at the forefront of your thought and your art is the identity now of being gay, being that, hey, I came out, I have this sense of freedom, I think I need to run with that for a little bit. I think I've got more that I need to say about that, and that needs to be there. Or are you like, is, is it more of a sense of, um, hey, I see that about myself, and now I can just apply that lens, that clarity to anything else in life. And I'm just telling those stories in whatever form or fashion they take. Does that yeah, kind of make I, sense? I think it's I think it's the latter. Um because I, you know, I still do a lot of like landscapes painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like being able to do the landscape. Um, but for lack of a better word, if I want to do a gay uh portrait, 
or 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 figure or something like that. Uh, I I don't have the hesitation anymore. Um, what does that mean? What did you mean by gay portrait? So I mean that, like I never would have thought of a heterosexual portrait. So I'm trying to think what, what's a gay portrait. <laughs> well, what so it, to, was that? Yeah. So to me, that would be me as a guy doing a painting of a nude guy. Okay. Um, uh, you know, not necessarily gay because there are, have been heterosexual painters who have sure. done male nudes. Sure. Uh, but to me, that to to me again, from where I came from, it's like. Okay, well, something's going on there. Uh, uh, okay, type of thing. So letting the attraction filter out, in other yes. words. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and being okay with it. Um, That's I, that, sorry, that just strikes me. Everybody at Vet Rep makes fun of me all the time because I, I always say, as a parallel to so many questions we get asked about different subjects, I'll always be like, well, it's like the Supreme Court and pornography. I know it when I see it. And that literally begs the question, of, when does that become pornographic and when is that just straight art? Because yeah. what 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 is that line anyway? That's just what that made me think of. Because I say that line literally four times a week. Anyway, so sorry. A little no, and, uh, but yeah. but I think the other benefit that has come out of it is um, being able to do things for others and kind of feel like I can take the brunt of any criticism. And and what I mean by that mm. is. So with the work that I'm doing now as as a um, career professional, right, helping um, any any member of the military find find a career um, with a focus on people with spinal cord injury and disease who maybe have higher barriers. Um, We put on weekly webinars on different aspects of career and and small business and things like that. and being able to host a webinar on the struggles of gay veterans um, who are out and there's still discrimination allowed in the workplace or there's legislation trying to get passed in certain states to allow you know it to 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 occur or just just talking about you know you you have gay veterans um, who do not have services at the VA that really would be beneficial um and being able to host an event on that and say so let's have a conversation about this and here's my story and this is this is why i think it's important um and if somebody comes back and says well i, I don't think that's an appropriate conversation that i can say well i i don't really care hmm. i don't care if you think it's appropriate um if it helps just one person with a struggle or with something else and, and to get themselves back on the feet, we're, we're going to go ahead and do it. Um, and so, but, but that's just across the board. We have done sessions on like justice involved veterans and getting them back into the workforce. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the military mentality that, you know, e- either you're perfect or you're, you're crap, right? Right. Zero tolerance on, on anything. And it's, and it's like the number of veterans who have some sort of, legal entanglement or incarceration and and it's like okay but that should not haunt them for the rest of their life we want them to be productive members of society um what do we do how do we offer it and so i think it comes out in in that respect um more than anything where do you see um the problems for gay veterans right now i'm saying just because you brought that up where where are where are those problems right now that you say? 
Um, I, I think the biggest thing is, and and I've seen some some amazing advancements. Like so, I mean, the VA actually having on their website programs for the LGBTQ community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for that to be posted, obviously on the Veterans Administration website, um, gives a little bit of credence that it's it's okay, right? And it's okay to to seek help. Um, I, I think the biggest um, you know, I, I, I think it's, there's a mentality that once a law changes, it's the way it's going to stay forever. Right. So the repeal of don't ask, don't tell mm-hmm. or the overturning of, of gay marriage. Right. Um, and just calling it marriage and treating it as marriage, like anything else. Um, I, I think we're like, yep. Okay. So we, we've now crossed that that hurdle we've jumped that hurdle um and unfortunately seeing that well even 50 years later supreme court decisions can be overturned and 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 changed um so unless it's codified in the constitution it could go back and so i think there's a i think there's a real fear of um the repeal of the repeal of gay marriage um you know, we did see some movement of uh, restrictions of transgender people serving in the military uh, under the previous administration. Um, and then of course, you see state by state um, things being passed. Um, and so I, I think it's just the, so it's I kind think, of an aware. It's an awareness of vigilance. It, it's awareness. It's a. It's an awareness. I think, or maybe even a hyper awareness of the rights that you think you have today, you may not have tomorrow. See, I don't think that with gay marriage, though. I could see with the transgender thing, um, but I think that's also a bit of a different. This is just me talking, but I mean, yeah. I feel like that's a bit of a different issue. But I think the gay marriage thing. I think that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. There's so many second and third order effects that come with that. I, I don't. I don't know how anyone could reverse that. I mean, I, I you know, you, outside of the Taliban taking over and putting down, you know, some sort of law, um, but even then, I, it's almost unenforceable. I, I would. I would think at this point, I feel like that that ship has sailed. I feel like no five, one. Five six years ago, that. I would have. Five six years ago, I would have agreed with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've, we've seen some shit that I was like, I don't think I would have ever dreamed I would see that in the United States of America. Uh, with and, what? What do you think? What are you thinking of? Oh well, I mean, so I I certainly never expected uh, Roe Ro versus Wade. Um, Although we do know that, like, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg was like, "Look, it's not great law. It should be legislated state by state." You could argue that's a procedural change as opposed to a substantive change as to whether or not it's the right thing to do, right? Yeah. And that's where I think it's a difference with the gay marriage thing. It's like, well, procedurally. Yes, Oberfell and all that, and like, okay, there's laws that were passed and what have you, but but also that's such a, what are you going to do? <laughs> People are married now, like they're not going anywhere. And I hate to say, I'm, I'm trying to think if I should even say this because it's going to sound harsh, but it's like an aborted baby is an abor- like that's a one time event. I, yeah. I I don't know how else to say that. It's just it's it's a one time thing. So theoretically, you could put a line in the sand and say, okay, no more of that. But with marriage, it's like, what are you going to do? Like all these people are married, like. What do you do? You can't stop people. You know, what, it's unenforceable, I think. I don't know. I, I see like I see. That's why I, I just think there's 
this is me just talking and I'm hardly the dispossessive authority on this, but it seems to me like that, sh- that should be, I think there's certain things that I can't see changing, but I don't know, but I'm interested. I mean, I'm asking the question. I'm just talking out loud. So, yeah, I, I think it's just the fear. Um, I think it's the mm-hmm. fear that, that, um, you know, that there's, there's no conversation about overturning heterosexual marriage. Right. Right. Um, but, but there's still the, what if, um, because I don't even think there's a conversation about overturning gay marriage, though. Now, do you hear that anywhere? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Really? Oh yeah. Okay. I've not heard of that. Okay. I mean, yeah. I don't know that I would have, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just not aware. Uh, unfortunately, um, and and even coming from sitting Supreme Court judges that say, well, maybe we should relook at, just like we did with Roe versus Wade. Do you think? And I'm asking because I this is not something I've looked into with, so I I really don't know the answers to this. Is that a procedural thing as well, or is that is that because there's some substantive issue? Uh, I I think it it starts as a um I don't like this, sure, and then becomes sure. a how do we procedurally change it? I mean, obviously, you would have to have some some individuals or groups of individuals or organization or whatever that that has standing um that somehow they they are harmed by this yeah um i see i don't yeah i just i mean even if if that were to happen i guess i guess i can't think that any state that if that were to go to referendum anybody would stop that like i feel like okay procedurally fine you don't want the law we just have to legislate state by state. I, I feel like, I feel like that that cat's out of the bag. I, I don't know that that's my feeling. And yeah. again, I'm I'm no authority on this. I'm just speaking extemporaneously. Um, not to make this suddenly this became like the gay rights issue. I didn't I didn't mean to like make that this whole episode. I'm like I, I want to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. But I, I will say it's interesting because um, we don't get to talk about this stuff on the show that often. And uh, and I actually. If you're cool with it, and I don't want to pimp you out on the spot, but um, can you are you comfortable talking at all about what happened at the end of your military career and how that unspooled and what that meant? And I guess n- not just to rehash it and wallow in the gory details necessarily, but what are the takeaways from it? And what what were the takeaways for you and then for the veteran community in general that you learned from that? Yeah, so... Uh, without going into into too much details, just uh, one, one, just a little too many times drinking and driving, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I I was out by myself because um, I I, you know, what wasn't going out to converse with people about what was going on, yeah. uh, sort of thing, and and eventually being like, yeah. Uh, is one one too many times and and you need you need to go uh either before or after your next look for promotion uh because promotion ain't happening um at that point how many years in did you have uh 12 yeah um so you know i mean theoretically it is the point where you either decide to stay or decide to go um you know you either make it a career or not so I I kind of helped myself make that decision with some some bad decisions. Yeah, yeah. Um 
you know, I, I will say I was very fortunate that I had friends um, in the outside world in government contracting that um, overlooked it. Um, and so I was able to get into a career um, outside of it and have a little bit of, of time um, to figure out what it was I wanted to do outside of the military. Um, and, and, you know, you get to the point where, uh, uh, again, it's the, I think the mentality is, you know, you, you go to school, you go to college or you join the military, you rise up through the ranks or you go to college and you get this job and you stay with a job. And, and at a certain point you retire, um, you know, from the military, you retire younger than you would from a job. And then you take your government contracting job and, and then eventually you, you retire. Um, but everything is based off of that career progression as opposed to life and interests and passions. Um, and so I'm, I'm very fortunate to be in a job that not only pays well, but um, also speaks to my passion of, of helping um, members of the military community. Um, and so, you know, being able to, to find that. Can we talk about that? Cause that, I mean, it definitely jumps out a whole bunch uh, when I'm just going through your bio, you know, it's, you've done so much for the veteran community um, from the veterans career program to the veteran business outreach center, all this different, all these different programs you've done. Why has there been that lasting commitment to the military? You didn't have a reason to turn back. You did 12 years. I mean, you don't have anything to be ashamed about uh, no matter how it ended. You did your time. Why? Why turn back? Uh, I, I I think at uh, at first it was feeling like I had let my brothers and sisters in the military down mm-hmm. by how things went, um, and so wanting to uh, make some amends there. Um, but now it's also at the point where it's like, yeah. So I, you know, I've got a good fifteen. 16, 17 years. So I, I'm basically into a second career, right? So I, I have as much or not more time as a civilian after the military than I did in the military. Um, and I've done, again, uh, I, I mean, I went back to school and got my MBA. I was unemployed. I was partially employed. I did government contracting with a six-figure job and hmm. nonprofit for a very low-figured uh, Right. Uh, type of thing. And I've done the art, I've done the storytelling, I still travel and everything. Um, and so being able to, when somebody asks a question about what should I do after the military, and being able to say, well, um, anything you want to. Because um, again, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. Um, yeah. And so being able to say, you know, well, this is my experience going back to school, or this is my experience being unemployed, or this is my experience with government contracting. Um, I joke that I I am more than happy to teach anybody how to do government contracting, so I do not have to. Um, So I, you know, I teach classes on that or the small business aspect of things. Um, I'm, I'm really finding the small business aspect even though it's something we really just started within the the veterans career program. Um, But I have veterans who have 
uh, MS and, and other spinal cord injuries who um, are just like, I, I don't know what I can do. And, you know, being able to say, well, um, it might not be the same for everybody, but you can still start a business um, or, or, you know, you can still have a career. Um, and, and part of it is um, demystifying, uh, especially with employers, um, what someone with a spinal cord injury and disease can do within their company. Because mm. um, I still to this day, even though there are these stories all over the place, uh, I have people going, yeah, but, you know, so I mean, they can do it, they can do a telemarketing job, right? And, and it's like, well, if, if that's what they want to do, yeah, but they're also engineers and RNs and, you know, cybersecurity experts and, and you know, all of these other jobs um, with some modifications to them uh, that they're doing. Um, and so I, I think a part of it has to do with just taking all this accumulated experience um, and, and saying, yeah, anything's possible. Do you see yourself as an artist? No, not yet. Why not? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. I, I I mean, I I still just joke with people that I'm like, you know, um, some days I move to throw paint at a canvas and some days that paint looks like something that somebody would like to buy. Uh, but I, I do not consider myself an artist. Um I think I'm very close to being able to, I mean, I know it's on my LinkedIn profile and, and my resume that, that I'm an artist. Um, but I just, and again, it goes back to, I, I see other people who are more successful, if you will, they mm -hmm. have art openings and in their name and everything. And it's like, yeah, that's an artist, but just like with anything, success is what you define it as, not what somebody else defines it as. So you know, the fact that I have performed at the Lincoln Theater, um, somebody would probably say that's that's a, a sign of success. Um, they don't typically let you get up on the Lincoln Theater stage and and perform. Um, one of my favorite things to do, and it's opening this coming weekend uh, down at the Torpe Torpedo Factory, one of mm. the smaller galleries, the Target Gallery does a it's called the March 150 Um and they sell like 150 panels and artists decorate them and then give them back for donation and people buy mm. them for $150 a pan. And for the last seven, eight years, I've donated a panel. Um, only once have I had somebody buy it. I'm I'm very optimistic that the two panels that I painted this year are going to sell. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think I'm getting close to the point where I would feel comfortable saying I'm an artist. Maybe after our show in April. Right? <laughs> well, the reason I'm asking is it's funny while you're talking I'm, and I'm hearing about, you know, the work you put into advocating for veterans. And in this case, you know, we're talking, you're talking about veterans that have MS and veterans that have illnesses and spinal cord injuries and, and things that are really hard to get over. And I feel like that's something that the civilian arts community, um, I'm trying to say this without sounding like I'm dinging them for it. it there's an, a necessary degree of narcissism I think one has to have to be an artist. Because if you don't care about your art, nobody else is going to give a shit about it. So right. it does make you have to be very devoted to it. That said, 
what I find with veteran artists is because of the their veteran status, there always seems to be a a greater picture. Their aperture is too wide. So they have a natural empathy towards certain causes, certain lines of effort that they want to keep doing. And that sometimes, I think, in veteran artists' minds, stops them from considering the, considering themselves to be artists because they go, well, I'm not out here just, I'm not Basquiat. I'm not just out here doing this all myself. It's like, well, no, but in a lot of ways, I think it also makes the art deeper and have more resonance because it's not solipsistic. It is a sense of, Hey, there's a bigger world out here and there's some real fucked up problems out here. And yes, but there's also a place for this beautiful thing that I'm trying to create. And maybe it touches on that. Maybe it doesn't, but that's valid too. But then I'm also aware it's not the end all be all of life. Right. And and there's that sense of proportion. And I feel like um, just listening to you say that, I was like, you know, what you just said, I can't imagine that anyone that's ever showed at the Guggenheim would have said that, would have been talking about, well, so here are these veterans with MS and you got to do that. Like, that isn't the way that that so many artists' worldview works. But I think that's one of the many unique things that veteran artists bring to their art is that holistic sense of a problem set and of the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're typically doing something else as well. Yeah. Yeah. And we're used to it, you know, because there's always, uh, I think with a lot of veteran artists, there's always been that art bubbling up, but it's like, yeah, but I can't, I I making a paycheck doing a different job right now. So it bubbles up and I either indulge it or whatever, but then it has to subside and I got to get on with this. Yeah. No, I think, I think that, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting hearing that. And yeah, I do think you're an artist. I think you're, uh, and I haven't even seen your your painting. We got to talk more about that. Did you study? Or is this uh, all other, just uh, what you like? Uh, just, you know, uh, an art league class here and there, mm-hmm. um, but didn't, never studied. Um, again, it's one of those things that's just, I, I do what I like. Um, and most of it just stays hidden. <laughs> when you do it, do you feel like it does what you wanted it to do, though? Do you feel like you're mastering the craft of it? Yeah, I I, I find that um, sometimes it is very difficult to bring the or not bring the military OCD side mm-hmm. uh, to, to the artwork mm-hmm. um, no. and just kind of letting things flow and everything. But once I do get to that state where I, I am just letting uh so michelangelo always said the the sculpture was within the marble i just released it um and so it, it's the same of um uh, you know just letting go and letting the paint and my you know muscle memory of what it was i want to paint um uh, take over then then i feel like it it accomplishes what what I wanted to accomplish. And what the the weirdest thing about it is, at, at least for me, whether it's the writing or the painting or anything, is I will struggle for the longest time with how uh, I want to do it because it needs to be perfect. Mm. Uh, and I will struggle for the longest, longest time. And then just I'll wake up one morning and in 15, 20 minutes, accomplish what I had been brooding over for, for two years. Uh, type of thing. So, um, which is interesting because that is not the advice I give to, <laughs> to other people. I'm like, hey, do all the sketches you want to you know, it, make the mistakes. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to care. Uh, and then I am the biggest hypocrite because I, you know, even my sketches have to be perfect. 
wow, really? Oh, yeah. Fuck. Do you have work that is shit that you let yourself be shit? That you go, yep, I'm just going to do this and I'm going to forcefully try to overcome that impulse? Yeah, so so I am okay with um, one journal containing the shit. <laughs> Um, so I have a journal that's like, I'll, I'll, I I allow myself to write whatever, draw whatever or whatever in that one journal. Um, but anything beyond that, um, probably not. So it's like, it's, it's like you and I have talked about taking the story and changing the perspective so that we get the three perspectives for the, for the April show. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, was on vacation last week. Um, Didn't do a lick of writing uh, really. Um, But the idea is in the head. uh, And, and within the next week or two, it's going to spew out um, and, and be able to knock it out and, and everything like that. I'm just thinking, let's, let's talk about the show. Let's bring everybody in on this because this will be a nice, plug for the show they can see that sausage actually being made here yeah um so yeah so it's so funny because now this is why i love doing this show now i have so much greater understanding of where dancing in the dark came from yeah right and um because i'll tell you the number one question i had when i read it i was like why is he telling the story of an army infantryman but now I think I can see why you chose to have an infantryman go through those experiences, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so then, yeah, then the practical problem we ran into is I was like, okay, I need three different perspectives to marry this up. But then, you know what I forgot? And I guess it was yesterday, the day before, for some reason, I was looking up your name in my email and I saw the poems and I don't know where those came. If you sent those to the blog, I don't know where those came from, but I'm like seeing them. I'm like, God damn, I thought I had poems. from. No, Charlie. I had. So when you had mentioned the show, I sent you that and dancing in the dark as just like, Hey, here's a sample of my material. I don't know how I see. I saw, I see dancing in the dark in the email. I, I don't know how I brain farted or didn't see the poems, but I'm like, Wait, hold on. Oh, wait, what poetry? Hey, wait, we got stuff. I was like, and I was like, well, I'm going to talk to him tomorrow. So I'll, I'll, I can stop the presses then. But I was like, um, I talked with Dex and I was like, you know, what we could even do is we could potentially juxtapose it where you can do a prose or a narrative or part of the, the actual fictional narrative and then pivot to poetry and then back to prose. And then she can go poetry to compliment you narrative prose and then back to poetry right. for her third or something like that. Like yeah. there's, there's ways we can mix and match the form. Um, Cause I was like, God, this, the, the poetry works too. So I think, I think, yeah, when it comes to building the show, look, if you've got ideas on how to break apart the perspective, God bless. And I don't want to, I just want to play the hot hand. I want to yeah. make it as easy on you and wherever you're feeling juiced up. You know, if you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm seeing this, then let's go with that. But the poetry is good. I mean, the poetry has got a home, you know, uh, so I don't know. We've got there's stuff to play with here. Yeah. Well, How do you so feel? interestingly enough, with Dancing in the Dark, I, I uh, every most everything I had written up to this point when I was a little kid, I wrote a lot of fiction. Um, but most things have been nonfiction. And I was taking a creative writing nonfiction 
uh, fix, sorry, fiction class. And the prompt, writing prompt was a blank who likes blank. And it, we were just supposed to list things out. And for some reason, I wrote a truck driver who likes ballet. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. is how that started. I love that. And that comes through that first fucking story. First segment yeah. is fucking dynamite. And that was, and, and by the time that class ended, it was a six week class. The, the story ended with the truck going off the highway mm. and everybody in my class was like, no, that cannot be the end of that story. Right. Mm. And so the second part uh, of going through recovery was written and then, and that's what got submitted to uh journal of veteran um, studies um, that's going to get published. Right. And that's the in, first two segments then. The first uh, uh, okay. uh, condensed version of the first two. Okay. All right. And then eventually wrote the third act of that. Um and and gotcha. I finally felt at the end of the third act that I was like, okay, this story is now complete. It it is. I'll tell you what I didn't like about the third act. Because <laughs> because I'm love if you're cool with it, because I love I, are you cool with this? We can cut this. Oh, yeah, no, go right ahead. Because what I, because, and hearing your personal story, I, I get it. But here's, here's what I didn't like is I was like a trucker who likes ballet, who then discovers that he's gay is not as interesting to me as a trucker because that's, because then he's making all the slurs, all the stuff that was said about him early on, just, oh, okay, well, that's who I was. And so then it's like, well, what's the resistance to him accepting that? Well, it's just whatever his own internal blindness or whatever to the fact. But then it's actually very straightforward and predictable. To me, I was like, well, the trucker that likes ballet is interesting, especially if he's not gay, because then it's like, oh, well, there's not that obvious attraction. It's a different kind of attraction. And that to me is more interesting. That said, I think there's absolutely room in it for a love story. Yeah. And because correct me if I'm wrong. And I mean, seriously, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm completely spitballing here. But it seems to me like you want to tell the love story, right? Is that, is that 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 it's not just a culmination of that story, but there's also a part of you that is that is really motivated to tell a love story. Yeah, there's definitely more. Right? There's definitely more of me in the third part than in the first two. I wonder. I I mean, again, and I. You've been thinking about it and all that, so I don't want to detract from where your head's at. I'll, I'll just throw out there. I'm wondering if that is if there's something standalone-ish with that Quite that we possible. can do. Because then we change perspective, right? We have a different protagonist that fits the theme. Yeah. And it's and it's a different um and it and it fully tells that piece. Cause that that I think is, yeah, that's fucking. Each piece individually is dynamite. Putting them together. That was my, that was my only thought. I was, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. What do we have to do to amp up the unpredictability? Yeah. Does that kind of make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, again, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about, so the first section of flipping the perspective and telling it from Earl's perspective. Mm-hmm. Who is who is interesting? The, who is the despicable character? Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. God, how do I how do I write 
like a despicable character, but, you know, not make it so obvious that you need to despise him. Right. Because he doesn't think he's despicable. He doesn't think he's right. He probably thinks he's doing a favor and, you know, uh, type of thing. And so it's um, that that's a perspective I'm interested in. Um, I'm also my my sense. I'm I'm just slightly toying with the with some of the stuff that you wrote. But my sense with Earl is I wonder how much he wants companionship. I think that's exactly what it is. Right. He wants that camaraderie and he's just approaching it in all the wrong ways. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I that's think- fucking interesting, man. That's fucking interesting. And see, that's why I like art so much. Yeah. Is because you can do with it whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. Do you think you could have written that five, six years ago? No. No. Why not? I don't think. Well, I I, I think first off, um, I look back at some of my writing and I probably would have been a very good reporter (laughs) Uh um, because I could tell a story along the lines of the facts. Mm. Um, But anything that had to do with the personal aspect of things, um, I, I wasn't able to do. Um, and so now that now that uh, basically I, I've put my emotions out there mm. uh, into the world, it's like I, I can express emotions in writing fiction. Um, so no, couple couple of years ago, I would not have been able to write that. Interesting. Before I forget, should we? Because uh, I did want to pick up the thread on the art. Should we think about you doing art? Is that a possibility? Do you do live art? Would you do live art? you have any interest in doing live art? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not going to be good uh, because it's always the the first, you know, well, I say that and, and that's not, you know, that's just, that's my bias against myself. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, so funny enough, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, they do, uh, Old Town Alexandria used to shut down part of King Street and do art uh an art fest it's Mm. since moved to a different more secluded area um but a business along king street there had said um hey we'd love to have an artist do something during arts fest maybe hang some of their artwork do a live demonstration i reached out to all my small business owners and that i knew were artists and i said hey here's an opportunity for you to put your art up during arts fest there's going to be Tens of thousands of people in Alexandria. You could even do a, a live demonstration or whatever. Not a not a single taker, really. And so I was like, "Well, wow. screw it. I've got artwork. Um, I'm going to make some money off of it." Um, so I hung my artwork and I did a live demonstration, and and I did a uh, uh, I did a lottery that I was like. For this live painting that I'm doing, $250, put your name in the hat, um, and and sold it. Um, so it actually it badass. Yeah, it was fun. It was, so yes, I I could potentially do that as well. Do you do do you do what would you feel comfortable doing live? Portraiture, 
Something inspired oh. by a prompt? Something abstract? Portraiture. Okay. Maybe abstract. I, I mean, it really would be one of those things where it's like once I know uh, or have an idea of it, then I can kind of prep myself mentally and with with the, the work. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. We got to think about that. Yeah. We got to think about how to. Uh, yeah. Plus a lot of it, you know, like I said, I've just, you know, realized that a lot of the art emerges once you, uh, I, I don't, I think it's Frank Gehry who says um, the first, the first pen stroke is the hardest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mine is the, the, you know, going from a pristine canvas to putting that first swipe of paint but once that's done, it's like, yeah, well, I'm committed now. The the the, the pristine canvas has been destroyed. Uh, I can do with it whatever I want. Um, so part oh. of it would emerge from that. Fuck. Okay. So I'm trying to think if I should, if I'm working, give anything away or not. Well, what the fuck? Let's give it away. Let's challenge. Everybody who listens to this can come to the fucking show and then act not surprised because they'll have heard this. If this works. You know what I'm wondering? Because Dex paints also. I'm wondering if we put a canvas down on the ground and both of you are sound like both of you are working on something while Chris battles is working on his portraiture. So Mm. both of you are working off the same piece and that way, while one's writing the other's painting while one's one's or sorry, one's talking, the other's painting and vice versa. We kind of pivot back and forth, except we, if it's either on the ground or if it's something that it's, it's, obscured from us so we see you painting but all we see is chris and what he's uh illustrating and at the end we see what you guys have created and we see what chris has created yeah you could even have a large canvas on an easel but faced away from the yeah. audience yeah with, with chris is the other other direction yeah, yeah there's something and, and there. for the audience this that. is uh this is april Oh, I'll do all the plugs in the intro. And outro. The yeah, yeah, I'll plug the shit out of it. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean we're we're whoring ourselves out every conceivable way we can. So yeah, I'll, I'll um we'll we'll definitely do that, dude. This is going to be badass though. I'm really really excited. This is um, yeah, this is very cool. So theoretically, I told Chris we'd get him the script by the 15th of March. Um, we can we have wiggle. I did it early so that we'd give ourselves some breathing room. Um. But we're we're getting close, man. We're getting really close to having that thing put together. That's gonna be freaking badass. Well, anyway. I think if nothing else, at least at this point, um, you could just send him dancing in the dark. Um, because something's gonna something in there is gonna be based around it. Yeah. And then obviously I can modify and, and work with Dex. He'll he'll be fine. He'll be fine. We'll 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 work, we'll work it up. Well, I I'm not super worried about it. I mean, as long as we're ballpark, you know, on that timeline, I think it'll work. Um, okay, we're probably getting super in the weeds now, and people are like, "Okay, guys, enough! <laughs> fucking tell me something that's going to apply to my life." Uh, dude, this is a blast. Charles, tell everybody where they should be following you because I want to get your fucking Instagram account bigger. Not that you necessarily want it to be. It seems like you're very comfortable just going. Nope, this is this is just what it is. Just me here. But I feel uh, I, as a promoter, I, I, I feel like do, I should make it bigger. I do want to do more, but I, uh, I I certainly just also enjoy posting photos of great cheeseburgers that I have uh, <laughs> where, wherever I go. Um, which, by the way, if, if you have seen the movie The Menu. I did not um, see it, with, but with I saw your post on it. Yeah, uh, I, I now feel justified uh, in finding the best 
cheeseburger uh, wherever I go. Um, God, is that me... the point of that? Is that the point of the movie? Yeah, it, is it, it, isn't it, it like a horror movie or something? It, it is a, I would call it a psychological thriller. Okay. All right. But it's all based on the premise of finding the greatest cheeseburger? Uh, not until the end. Oh, okay. Do we just give a spoiler out for the menu? Is that what just uh, happened? I'll put a it, trigger warning or spoiler warning in there for everybody. Um, so it is it is an exclusive restaurant um that you have to be invited to. Um, and I think there's only like 15 people or whatever that are invited to this party. Right. And then and then every dish has a theme, but unfortunately tonight's menu or the the menu of the night that we see has to do with um bad things that the people who are in attendance have done um and right. and the chef the chef and the crew taking their revenge on all the people um who have shit on the um service community over the years <laughs> it seems like it'd be a good dark comedy if they wanted to go that way there's some um, there there is some humor to it uh right. as well it, it's uh I'd hope. All right. Hey, Charles, tell people what do they need to follow you? Uh, I, you know, What's what? I'm trying account? to look up my Instagram account. So, you know, so I may, probably, I may actually have it up. Probably Instagram is the best. Um, I'm realizing that there are a lot of Charles McCaffrey's on Instagram. I bet I've got it right here. I'm betting because I had you punched up a couple of days ago. Oh, no. Aren't you Charles McCaffrey? I think you're just Charles McCaffrey, aren't you? Uh, it, it may be like 1970. Okay. You see? So I, I think we found, I think, I think we found the litmus test to being a professional artist. If you know your Instagram handle right off the top of your head, then you're clearly <laughs> <laughs> in that place. Um, here I'll punch this up. No, you're McCaffrey dot Charles. There we go. McCaffrey dot Charles. All right. And so no numbers, Instagram. right? No numbers. No, no, just McCaffrey dot Charles. So badass dude. This is a blast, man. I had so much fun talking. Thanks Likewise. for doing this. I, yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, to be continued and, uh, especially on April 13th, but yes, even above and beyond that, dude, it's a blast brother. Let's talk real soon. Sounds good. That was the savage wonder of Charles McCaffrey. Was I lying? Was that show not unlike any other show we've done? <laughs> I mean, for one thing, you guys just get the whole production meeting, the whole behind the scenes of Savage Wonderground and how where we're going and very frank notes from me and, and about to Charles about his work and uh, thoughts from Charles about where he's going with it and what he's going to do with it and all this stuff. Anyway, I like that we kind of open the window a little bit and let you guys in to see some of that. Um Certainly the other stuff uh, that we talked about, my God, we talked about a lot. You know, you never know with these episodes. You never know where the conversation is going to go. Never anticipated we were going to get into a discussion about gay rights to that extent on the show. Who would have thought? But there we are. Um, Really fun time talking with Charles. And such a – I hope you guys were as surprised and blown away by his story uh, as I was. You know, I had no idea about what his military career entailed, much less how it ended, much less all the tension and grief and 
I hate to use the word trauma because I feel like that's such an overused word, but for lack of a better one, let's just call it trauma that, um, that he went through at the end of his time in the military. <clears throat> it's really interesting. You know, it's really interesting. Um, I think there, the more I do this show, the more I think there's two kinds of veterans, um, especially that you find in the veteran artist community. There's people that really felt and not just felt at home in the military, but experienced home in the military. They were square pegs and square holes. Um, and then there are the people that weren't. And you find both in the veteran artist community, which I think is really surprising. I think it's surprising that you find, I mean, everyone's used to dysfunctional artists becoming artists. <laughs> People aren't necessarily used to um, completely functional, uh, you know, uh, uh, people that have had a full career in the military becoming artists. Um, and I think Charles, like many of us, straddles both those lines. And I think that's, you know, it's interesting. You know, so many of us, I think, join the military uh, because we are trying it on for size. Does this fit? Does it feel like it fits? Does it feel like what I'm going to do? And, you know, I think of like Brad Thomas, you know, talking about going from, you know, element to element and moving from Ranger Bat to to Delta and all that. And uh, you're just saying, hey, I was just putting one foot in front of the other. And, you know, I seem to be doing pretty good doing this. So, yeah, why not go to Delta? Why not stay in Delta for 12 years? And um, and then other people that are, you know, Doc Oliver, you know, one one contract and, you know, brutal deployment. And it's like, yep, that's it. And uh, it's just interesting. It's interesting that there's and I, I, these are very broad brushstrokes. I, I, I don't you know, it's funny. I was kind of thinking about this after I talked to Charles. I didn't have any of these thoughts while I was talking to him. But afterwards, because I was thinking about our interview a whole bunch, it did make me think, you know, uh, there is something unrequited about so many people's military service where they didn't get to do exactly what they wanted to do. They didn't see something through. There was something missing. There was something chafing. Um, and it's not totally surprising that people like that find find and need a voice in the veteran arts community because there's a lot of stuff to unpack there. And as I say, I find it even more surprising the people that had 20 year careers in the military and on paper were like, you know, this was the right spot for them. They fit in. I'm thinking of like Derek Stoner, Scott Mann, you know, full fledged 20 year careers. Um, and they too needed the veteran arts community needed to find their voice there and have been equally successful in that world. That's just really interesting. And it's really interesting. Yeah. The different kinds of people you see in the different way that the military um, rubbed off on people, different way people navigated the pitfalls of dealing with a huge institutional bureaucracy. Anyway. Yeah. Interesting, interesting stuff. So Hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Now, let me get back to my ulterior motive for having this episode. Savage Wonderground Three Strangers, the latest Savage Wonderground show. One night only, April 13th. It's a Thursday night, Thursday, April 13th at 6 p.m. at the Principal Gallery in Old Town Alexandria. 
Go to SavageWonder.com right now and get tickets. SavageWonder.com, SavageWonder.com. Tickets are 20 bucks. We split the proceeds with our veteran artists. This show is going to be so badass. I can't even tell you. Hopefully this interview G'd you up for it and gives you an idea of kind of at least one of the elements of this show. Um, but yeah, this show is going to be badass. So get tickets now. Do not mess around with that. If you're in the DC area, going to the DC area, willing to commute to the DC area, come on down to Old Town Alexandria on a beautiful Thursday night, right in the middle of cherry blossom season. And um, we'd love to see you there. It's going to be a cool show. SavageWonder.com. Go get your tickets. Okay. That's the only thing I'm going to plug for right now. Um, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for getting this episode out at the 25th hour, as always. <laughs> and uh, on that note, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater, see you next time. We'll dive further into the savage wonder of veterans in the arts. <laughs>